Although the Constitution of the United States is now considered a historic and pretty much sacred document in America, it may not have stood the test of time had its defense not been led by such a distinguished and honorable man. Think about it. You probably wouldn't be as jazzed around Christmas season if Santa Claus was portrayed like a power-hungry creep staring into windows to watch people when they're sleeping. Or, to use a more mature analogy, perhaps Apple wouldn't have taken off as a company if it didn't have a charismatic leader like Steve Jobs at the helm in the early years. The character of a given leader is of the utmost importance, especially at the outset. And nowhere is that more evident than during the founding of the United States. So much depended on maintaining unity in the infant years of our nation. America would need a leader who exemplified that unity. Someone revered and admired by Southerners and Northerners alike. By rural farmers and city merchants. By the wealthy landowning elite and the hard-scrabble working class as well. Someone whose judgment could not be questioned. Whose strength was undeniable and whose integrity was unmatched. For the newly born United States, their flight through revolution and into statehood was successful, but they would need a once-in-a-lifetime leader to help them stick the landing. His name, of course, is George Washington, and this is Rebellion. secret that George Washington longed for a quiet family life at Mount Vernon. After the war wound down, his wish of living out his days in peace and harmony beside his beloved wife Martha proved to be short-lived. Before he knew it, he was being summoned to Philadelphia in the summer of 1787, again being called to lead his countrymen. Up to that point, the 13 colonies, which became the 13 states following the Declaration of Independence, were only loosely held together by the Articles of Confederation. Proponents of the Articles preferred them because they protected the sovereignty of the states. However, many others favored a stronger central government, including Washington himself. He knew firsthand the punishment endured from trying to fight a war without the support of a strong federal government. For years, he had to continually beg Congress to properly supply the army with basic provisions, clothing, weapons, and ammunition. In his view, a nation who lacked federal authority would never last. He described his thoughts on the subject in a letter to Henry Knox, stating that the obsession with state power was, quote, leading us from those great and fundamental principles which are characteristic of wise and powerful nations, and without which 
we are no more than a rope of sand and shall as easily be broken. It had become evident that a change was needed, and eventually all 13 states ratified the new constitution. At that point, the only thing left to do was choose a leader. It was probably the easiest decision in the history of the United States. George Washington was the only man for the job. However, Washington was reluctant. As letters poured into his Mount Vernon estate, pretty much begging him to accept the presidency, he remained steadfastly rooted to his retirement plans. When his former aide-de-camp Alexander Hamilton wrote to him, telling him that his service as the first president would be, quote, the unanimous wish of your country, Washington replied, It is my great and sole desire to live and die in peace and retirement on my own farm. If it sounds like he was merely being polite in his wish to avoid serving, he also commented on the idea of a possible presidency by saying he would feel, quote, enveloped on every side with clouds and darkness, and described going into politics as, quote, going to the place of my execution. So he didn't exactly want the job. Eventually, though, the constant barrage of encouragement wore him down, as it became clear that the security of his nation may be in jeopardy if he failed to act. He remained humble to the end, though. Citing his inexperience and incompetence in political matters, he told Henry Knox that, quote, integrity and firmness is all I can promise. In the spring of 1789, the electoral votes were counted. Rather than holding a popular vote of any kind, chosen electors from each state cast their ballots. All 69 of them voted for George Washington, the only unanimous selection in our country's history. On April 30th, 1789, Washington stood on the balcony of Federal Hall in Lower Manhattan. Hundreds gathered, waiting since dawn to get a glimpse of their nation's hero and to witness history. Eventually, Washington emerged, draped in a red overcoat, a steel-hilted sword hanging at his hip, and placed his hand on a Bible, taking the nation's first presidential oath of office. Following his swearing-in, Robert Livingston, New York's chancellor and the man who administered the oath shouted to the gathered crowd of onlookers, long live George Washington, president of the United States. That ceremony and everything from then on was unprecedented. Washington and his cabinet of Thomas Jefferson, John Jay, Henry Knox, and Alexander Hamilton literally had to invent 
what the presidency of the United States would be. Everything from how the president should dress to what they should be called and how they should be contacted had to be considered and debated. All of them knew that every little decision they made would somehow alter the path of the country for generations to come. As is often the case in presidential terms, economic and domestic issues took center stage in Washington's first four years. Despite leading America to independence, Congress had been cash-strapped for the entirety of the war. Washington had been constantly at risk of losing his troops to desertion. Unable to pay or even properly clothe and feed the soldiers, leaders of the Continental Army promised other incentives like pensions and land holdings. Even after victory, though, those promises proved difficult to keep. With American war veterans losing faith in political leadership, something had to be done to raise revenue. How would their fragile unions stay together if they didn't have enough government funding to provide protection to their own people? The first Congress, unable to tax Americans due to the inevitable backlash, instead passed the Tariff of 1789, which placed tariffs on imported goods from foreign countries. Ships were commissioned to enforce those collections, and the money collected soon made up the vast majority of government funds. Despite this progress, the U.S. was still in a crippling debt crisis. Due to extensive counterfeiting during the war, Britain was able to severely devalue American currency. Alongside those attacks and a great deal of borrowing from the French, Spanish, and Dutch, America was buried under a mountain of debt. To stabilize the American economy, Alexander Hamilton, one of George Washington's most trusted advisors during the Revolution, and the man he chose as Secretary of the Treasury, proposed allowing the federal government to assume the combined debt of all 13 states. Despite vociferous opposition from Southern representatives, whose states borrowed next to nothing during the war, his Funding Act of 1790 was successfully passed and proved to be an early victory for the Washington administration. As time went by, Washington had to continue to look for more sources of revenue. Though Hamilton's economic plan had stabilized the economy, establishing a foundation that would steady the country and establish it as a legitimate world power, it did not repay the national debt. To begin chipping away at it, Washington's cabinet proposed a tax on whiskey. Nowadays, taxes on supposed vices like cigarettes and alcohol, are common, even if further-reaching plans like taxing sugary foods and sodas have been met with resistance. Back then, however, there were still two things you never messed with when it came to American citizens. Their money and their booze.
for the next few years, tax collectors encountered violent opposition as residents organized armed militias, tarred and feathered officers, and attacked and burned the home of a federal marshal. In response, Washington, weary after years of trying to negotiate from afar, rode out personally with an army of 13,000 militiamen to quell the rebellion. By the time Washington's men arrived, the rebels had dispersed. Roughly 150 protesters were rounded up, arrested, and charged with treason. Out of those, only two were found guilty. And President Washington pardoned them both. The incident is often cited as being either the great cause of a group of rebellious citizens opposed to a tyrannical and overreaching government, or a glorious victory by the state in squashing a violent revolt. Whatever side of that debate you fall on, though, one thing is undoubtedly true. George Washington had successfully steered the newborn United States of America through the first real challenge to its authority. As president, there was one issue that had followed Washington his whole life. One that his countrymen and humanity desperately needed him to address. Slavery. Having been a lifelong slave owner, the idea that he was leading a country of people into freedom was particularly contradictory and caused slaves and abolitionists to question his moral fiber. If he had had it his way, the issue would have been ignored. Though Washington continually stated in private letters that he abhorred the idea of slavery, he nevertheless took advantage of its legality. So as abolitionists pushed for freedom, Southern planters became vocal proponents for protecting slavery. They complained that their slaves were running away to Northern states that had abolished the practice. These slave owners wanted a legal framework with which to regain control of their escaped slaves. They also worried about uprisings and the collapse of their entire economy if the institution of slavery were ever threatened. Fearing that these southern states would leave the Union if the problem worsened, Washington, along with members of Congress, felt the need to take action. So... Though he purported to oppose slavery in private, Washington signed the Fugitive Slave Act of 1793. This law, passed by a vote of 48 to 7, made it possible for slave owners to recover an escaped slave. On top of reducing escape attempts, the Fugitive Slave Act also declared that the children of any escaped slave be considered the legal property of their parents' owners for the entirety of their lives. Perhaps in an attempt to slow the expansion of slavery, Washington signed into law the Slave Trade Act of 1794 the following year, 
which outlawed the international slave trade. Now, this did not immediately stop the importation of slaves, however, since it was rarely enforced. And though it reduced the number of Africans being trafficked from foreign nations, it allowed the institution of slavery to flourish back home. Despite many of the great accomplishments Washington enjoyed during his presidency, the issue of slavery will forever be a stain on his reputation. While attempting to tackle domestic issues with a mix of success and failure, America's foreign diplomatic ties were put to the test, most notably by the emergence of the French Revolution. In July of 1789, French revolutionaries stormed the royal prison and armory known as the Bastille, marking the beginning of the French Revolution. From the beginning, most Americans, including the majority of Washington's cabinet, supported the rebellious actions of their French allies, thought to be acting out against a tyrannical monarchy, just as they had done a decade prior. However, the revolution in France soon devolved into bloodlust as the king and hundreds of others were brutally executed, often beheaded by way of the guillotine. Arrests were made against anyone suspected of being pro-monarchy, including one of the most vocal supporters of the American Revolution, Thomas Paine, a man whose seminal pamphlet, Common Sense, made clear his distaste for monarchical rule. Even the Marquis de Lafayette, for whom Washington often expressed his deep love and admiration, was forced to flee France to avoid imprisonment. The French leadership soon declared war against many European nations, including England, Netherlands, Austria, Prussia, and Sardinia. And while the reign of terror continued, Americans became split over whether or not to send military aid. With one half of Washington's cabinet supporting the French and the other supporting the British, Washington decided to leave America on the sidelines. Owing to the fragility of the nation at that time, the great cost they would incur and the negative diplomatic repercussions that surely would amount no matter who they supported, Washington announced the Proclamation of Neutrality in 1793. His neutral stance became one of the hallmarks of his presidency. Remaining neutral in foreign affairs, however, didn't always lead to big dividends back home. You see, American merchant ships sailing in the Mediterranean and Atlantic often encountered a unique challenge, piracy. Pirates were a common threat on open waters in those days boarding ships, taking prisoners, and stealing cargo. For America, 
it was never really a problem since, in their days as a British colony, the mighty British Navy would defend their merchant sailors on the waters. Even during the Revolution, American ships were protected, that time by France. However, once America had broken off from England and angered France by remaining neutral, piracy became a huge problem. Off the northern coast of Africa, pirates seized American ships at will, taking hundreds of prisoners. The obvious answer to this problem would be to establish a navy, one that could defend American merchant vessels in foreign seas. However, the idea was hotly debated, with many in Congress feeling that the establishment of a navy would balloon into an out-of-control organization dependent on more and more revenue. But all the while, the piracy problem persisted, as more and more American citizens became prisoners in far-off places. So, in 1794, Washington chose to act, creating America's first navy with the passage of the Navy Armament Act. At the same time, Washington established a treaty with the so-called Barbary states of Tunis, Algiers, and Tripoli, paying a hefty ransom to bring home some 200 prisoners who had languished abroad for years, and paying additional yearly tributes to ensure safe passage of their ships. It was costly, but saved many lives and ensured the growth of America's economy through vital international trade. Even though paying a ransom and a yearly bribe to pirates seems a ludicrous course of action for an American president today. Even in the midst of his presidency, Washington pined to exit the stage of public service and political life. In a letter to his friend Edmund Pendleton, he wrote, quote, I can religiously aver that no man was ever more tired of public life or more devoutly wished retirement than I do. Despite that wish, the comforts of home would evade him for years to come. As his cabinet fractured and Americans continued to bicker over domestic and foreign issues alike, it became obvious that the man who had reluctantly led a nation would need to continue that leadership if the union he dedicated his life to protect stood any chance at achieving longevity. To find out how his talented cabinet split apart and how he stood tall in life and in death, tune in next time to the sixth and final installment of George Washington and Rebellion. Thank you.